0: Hello, and welcome to the second season of Intrigue Explained. It's the 10th of November, and this is the AI Road to Serfdom edition. Before we get into the general topics of today's conversation, with me is my old sparring partner, Dmitry Groszbinski, the director of Explained Trade, a trade and negotiations consultancy. Hello there, Dimitri. Looking well. Thank you. It's good to be back, John. And also, which is a little bit of a surprise, we're definitely 33% better or actually probably more like 150% better oh. now. We have a Helen Zhang, my co-founder at International Intrigue uh, and longtime friend, former diplomat, former colleague of all of us. Hi, Helen. Welcome.
1: The Hello, besties, as Gen Z people say. We are yeah, going to is...
2: keep adding Australian diplomats until morale improves. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I'm your host for
0: this series of our podcast. I'm John Fowler, co-founder of International Intrigue. Going to do things a little bit differently this series. We're playing around, listening to feedback. We're going to have conversations about things that we find interesting in the news that are related to foreign policy, diplomacy, international relations, this kind of stuff. Uh, And this week, we are kicking off our conversation with a general chat about all things AI. Now, the hook here is, uh, as I'm sure most of you will have heard, last week, Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister of the UK, held a much vaunted conference at Bletchley Park. Now, Bletchley Park is famous in the UK, famous worldwide as the home of the code breakers in World War II, where uh, they cracked the Enigma Code um, and generally stuck it to the Nazis. So it's a good place um, and an infamous infamous place. Uh, so I think, I, you know, I think the symbolism is there for hosting a, a, a sort of a giant AI conference. Probably, I would argue, the first AI conference of its kind that brought together um, political leaders, the CEOs and senior leaders of tech companies. And just very quickly to kind of run down some of the folks who were there, we had the U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris was there, Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission President. Obviously, we had the muskinator, CEO of Tesla <laughs> and SpaceX, and more pertinently to this conference, the CEO of XAI, which we'll come to his AI startup. Uh, and then there was just a, a cavalcade of tech, tech uh, bigwigs. You had Microsoft President Brad Smith, Google DeepMind CEO, Demis Hassabis, Meta Chief, and Nick Clegg former British politician and and head of kind of safety at Meta. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, that's the folks behind ChatGPT, Anthropic CEO, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang. So it was like absolute, you know, who's who of heavy hitters in this space. And they kind of discussed how to control, regulate, rein in, stop AI taking over the world. Helen, what did you make of the conference? Did you, Was it a snooze mm. fest? Or, I mean, and also, why now? It feels like obviously AI is blown up in the news, but why uh, Why was this conference right now?
1: Right. I mean, before I answer that question, I just want to acknowledge all the logistical stuff behind the scenes had to organise the oh literally park. Apparently, it was yeah, a total geez. nightmare, as you can imagine. Tiny little to try to get that many people in. So that's my first thing. My second thing is I'm disappointed, John, that you didn't introduce Rishi as Dishi Rishi. Um, which I think is still appropriate and that's, acceptable. That's, that's, no, that's, that's, maybe that's You're, you are not shaking your head. So, all right, we might v- revisit that. But look, <laughs> to, to answer your question of, you know, why now? I think this last year, we've really, really seen AI blow up, right? And that's not to say that AI hasn't been around. So yeah, There's been companies using artificial intelligence, machine learning tools for decades. Right. But now in the last year of ChatGPT, Chat, obviously it's become really mainstream. And I think that's raised awareness as to oh my God, there's this existential, quote unquote, existential risk. What are we going to do about it? Right. And so I think that I think was a catalyst behind a lot of country um, getting together and banging their heads together to think about what's next. And of course, tech companies always, you know, the Silicon Valley of letter early on this year, drew from a lot of senior tech folks who were there saying, hey, we need to do something about this technology because unlike Social media and sort of the Web 2.0, Web 3.0 with AI is potentially much, much worse, um, or is much, much worse. Um, so that's the second point. And then I think, thirdly, of course, what else is going on is that the China US competition, right? And everything that's sort of behind the greater sort of geostrategic. So all these factors, plus the fact that I think folks really just love international conferences. Any excuse up. to get on a plane. Correct. Any excuse to, you know, get together and, and have, have a bit of a chin lag. But look, as as to whether or not it was successful, I think and please feel free to jump in here, others, but I thought it was. The fact that you've got sort of, you know, the likes of US, UK, China and the three sort of I guess what they call like a tripod of tech regulation, like the Chinese, the EU and the US model together hoping to get to the same place, I think is a win. And I know that's a very, very weak sauce sort of agreement. Uh, don't worry. Order.
0: I'll, I'll come back at you and, and disagree with you. <laughs> we'll we'll, put, some, we'll okay. put some hot sauce on the weak sauce.
1: <laughs> excellent, excellent. But those who are listening, just, just uh, as an interesting segue, John's nickname as I've called him for years is actually sauce. So whenever oh, people yeah, mention Chinese, sauce, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah,
0: because well, John sounds like, And also just like, it's, it's not a particularly nice image of like my hands covered in sauce or something, but, but let's, let's leave that there. Dimitri um, thoughts. I mean, particularly on why you think the urgency of this stuff is, a, is appearing now. I mean, Helen mentioned AI is blown up. This existential threat idea is really, you know, it's it first arose in Terminator and now it's come back. Why now? And what, like, what's, what's, what's the driver of it, you think?
2: Well, I do think there is this nebulous sense of apocalyptic threat. But I do think, even in our earlier discussion a minute ago, it kind of goes undefined. Everybody jokes about sort of totally. Terminator existential risk, yeah. where sort of the logic is we we task an AI with making the world a better place, and it figures out that the number one variable that it can alter is the number of humans, and reducing that to zero, and how many problems <laughs> that would that would fix. But I don't know that that is necessarily what. Many serious people are genuinely worried about in terms of AI risk. Uh, I know I know that that is That's a right. risk. I don't think anybody is handing the nuclear launch codes to Grok AI or whatever Musk's UAI is called anytime soon.
1: That's but, right. It's Grok. Yeah.
2: Yeah. God. Apparently it's sassy and it has declared him the supreme meme lord. The internet was a mistake is really where I come down on all of this, <laughs> but, yeah, but but no, but very concretely, kind of, there are actually really scary things that AI opens up the possibilities for. And some of what we're going to be talking about today, I think touches on those in that, for example, the ability for AI to create things that look real. We've hmm. already seen the first examples of election interference with deep fakes that are so real as to be convincing. Uh, the ability to synthesize and put together information and instructions on previously very complex topics, like how to create a biological weapon. People would always joke about, oh, you know, you can Google how to build a nuclear bomb. AI will write you the step-by-step instructions. The, so so I, I do think that there is this sense of urgency. There is a, a public sort of vague discomfort of like AI is scary, but there is also within expert communities from health to national security to a whole bunch of other places, a lot of voices going like, no, no, we need to be start having really serious conversations about what this stuff can do. And we ideally should have started those conversations five years ago.
1: Well actually Dimitri, on that, I really think that the like the key difference, right, the sort of polar opposites of within the AI machine learning community is people who believe that the existential risks are the things that they have to tackle first, versus others on the other end of the spectrum who are like, you know what, that's just actually BS, you know, we just need to tackle things like algorithmic bias and things that are, I guess, a sort of internet representation of the existing inequalities in society. Right, so that's where the sort of two discussions are. In could could you explain
2: algorithmic bias? Algorithmic yeah, for
1: bias. sure, for sure. So, for example, if you you know during my time working at Google Search, when you Google sort of like secretary, you can imagine what kind of images produced by the search results, right? And I think that sort of bias from society of like, okay, maybe that's like a bad example. I see John's having no, a no, no. John having reaction. John like actually, I
2: was a first secretary. That. Second, (laughs) second, actually.
1: Um, But you know, seriously, if you Google that or certain terms that have obviously biases that are implicit in our society being reflected online, I think that is one thing that people are kind of thinking about solving. And so, for those who are working in sort of the human rights space, I think that is one area that they're really thinking about versus people on the national security slash election integrity and democratic resilience side on the other end of the spectrum are thinking about the other stuff that you just
0: mentioned. I think that's a really good point that both of you've made that this idea, this dichotomy between existential threat and, you know, my Terminator line, there was a bit of a throwaway line, but it it is yeah. kind of half the problem because that's how I think a lot of the media slash public.
1: Oh, 100%. about AI.
0: That's what they attach to AI. It's a bit jokey, but it's also like, oh my God, we're, we're all going to die. Um, But Nick Clegg, president of global affairs. Matter. He was at the Bletchley Park conference, and he and he literally said exactly what you guys said. He said existential fears are being overplayed at the moment; they're unknowable. He's more concerned about the immediate threat to things like democratic polls. He, he said mm-hmm. we have some things which we need to deal with right now, and
2: they need to take priority. So it's a, it's a it's a really good point. I mean, like existential threats to democracy, sure, but I think on like a local personal level, if you're listening to this, chances are if it's not already being done, so within five years. Your resume, when it goes in to apply for anything larger than your local coffee shop, chances are the first layer (laughs) of screening over that will be by an AI. And if that has been programmed on like a successful candidate looks like a white male who went to Yale after going to a private select school, that algorithmic bias is going to start like doubling down on inequalities that already aren't great.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's already here, right, Dim? I, I think I'm pretty sure that none, no one actually ever saw my CME when I applied for the tech companies. It was already screened by machine learning and then only if people got references, then they went to a real person to say, oh yes, I know about Yale. Uh, this person is not Yale male and pale, so therefore, right, right. as an example. Let, um, let, but let, it's only, I think, going to get worse.
0: Let me ask you both a question then. Is, is international, are international conferences like this the right place to be talking about those kinds of you know really internal firm level kinds of things do we do we want international governments dictating to individual firms you know fix your algorithm here do this about bias or or is it better to kind of let companies figure it out and and go that
1: way I mean, I I honestly think this is a good thing. And I I think, John, you know, I'm a a bit of a tech optimist, like not in the blind, musky sense of the word, but I do think that, you know, having companies as well as governments at least be on the same page thinking about guardrails and what's out there and kind of like, you know, very loose norms like, hey, this is okay. And this requires human input and AI really just augments human decisions, right? Helps human decisions. Um, so I definitely think that this is, a, you know, ha- having it is better than not having it. Similar to kind of what we talk about with COP, and also with the UN, right? Like the the, the other alternatives that's not there. Um, and I do think that this sort of forum, you know, we talked about, is an intrigue as well with a pluralistic, as a person, multilateral setting is probably more nimble and competent at producing some results because there are fewer kind of gesturing and posturing and sort of making, you know, national level statements well, than than the UN. And
0: also, I mean, realistically, at this point, even though the potential to affect the world is obviously there, there are very few countries and companies oh, 100%, 100%. sitting at this table 100%. at the moment. Like I, I, and, and I mean yes. that with, with no disrespect to, you know, lesser developed countries, but it, it's, you know, it's not yeah. a thing that they have experience with just yet, I think.
1: Totally. Totally. Uh, I would but- also
2: say the role of, sorry, the role is to step in where there isn't a natural market incentive do the right thing and when it comes to large Uh model um, and ai products a lot of the commercial incentives are to do what's easier and cheaper which is to rely on say existing data sets that may not be demographically balanced um and so Uh so there is a kind of role given that kind of not doing the right thing creates commercial commercial benefits i guess in in the short term you can Uh you can operate cheaper if you operate more recklessly, then having a summit where all of the big leaders send a signal going, hey, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point we're going to ask you some pretty hard questions about the guardrails you put in place, sends a signal to the guys who are putting yeah, this together, going, better, Yeah, better spend the money now, spend a little bit more now and make sure we have a good story to tell six years from now when the regulators start getting feisty.
0: Okay, that yeah, is a perfect 100%. point for me to segue to what I want to kind of bring up about the U.S. You, you, you're talking about regulation, talking about guidelines. Um, Obviously, we have the U.S. executive order. That came out earlier this week, I think, right, Helen? I think
1: it was last week. Yeah, yeah last so Monday. Right around
0: when the, the yeah. Bletchley Park conference was, right? Um, So the, the Biden administration issued an executive order, and, and that is essentially just a, a, a bit of a bit of u.s political trickery in the sense that you can kind of pseudo create guidelines and rules that don't quite rise to the level of laws so they don't have to go through congress because you know Whole nother whole other topic but Congress isn't super functional right now so this is kind of a way to get oh, it right. uh, exactly um, and the executive order um, I don't recommend anyone well I do recommend people read this source material je- in general but it's tedious if I'm honest it's
1: 111 pages John
0: exactly so, it's yeah. and, and you sent us you sent us in our preparation right. documents you sent us oh here's here's a nice crib notes for it it's only about half the length that I what, what? You, you lost me and then more I gave you the crib notes notes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, correct. Right. You're 65 pages, which was like very condensed out from the 111 pages.
0: Yes. Here's my here's my go at condensing it down to about a sentence. Tell me if I'm wrong, Helen. The executive order will essentially require tech firms developing AI technology, AI systems to release the results of their testing of these systems to the government before they are released to the public. Is that about True. right? Obviously, it's way more nuanced, but...
1: That is right. I think it's that. And then also, I think just putting or imposing on on tech companies sort of AI generated content being watermarked and that there's like a providence trail of what is a deep fake and what is non human entities. Right. So I think that that was like one of the other pillars and the other one is privacy legislation. So I think in some ways, um, framing this as like the AI executive order was very clever because it kind of allowed the Biden administration to kind of lump in a whole bunch of legislation on tech that they haven't been able to pass because Congress is Congress. Right. Um, And so that includes privacy and that includes the content integrity stuff. Uh, So I thought it was actually really clever. Uh, all 111 pages of it, which I did not read, but I read the, the Crips notes of it. And I think that's really the the kind of sentiment around D.C. as well, that people think, oh, yeah, this is a really good thing. Let's hope that it helps with the elections in the U.S. and around the world next year in setting like, at least a precedent.
0: Dimitri, I know being a masochistic trade nerd who enjoys reading Ta- ta- tables of tariff lines and and di- and deep deeply tedious documents. You probably did read all 111 pages,
2: right? Yeah, naturally. Um, I was also quite unwell and suffering from insomnia, and nothing will knock you out like 111 pages of tech regulation. There, there were some There were some interesting things in there. In that you can see in the way that the EO is written that they're trying to balance, as I think every attendee at G7 is. Yes, there's an imperative for safety, but absolutely everyone wants to be at the cutting edge of this as well. There are two incentives on any government right now. One is to assure the public that they will be protected from Skynet. And the second Mm -hmm. one is to ensure that the company building Skynet is headquartered in their jurisdiction and paying taxes to them and employing lots of coders in on their ground. I mean, that is, that is very simplistic, but so, so. So, for example, one of the one of the provisions in the EO requires a level of disclosure that only kicks in at a level of I don't quite know the the, the right way to describe it. Basically, a model that is more complex than any models we currently have. We are two right. or three years away from having large language models that right. are sophisticated enough to be covered by the disclosure provisions of this EO.
1: That's right. And Nothing's a, retrospective as well, right? No. It's all sort of like prospective, which is exactly. interesting. Yeah.
2: It, it is all very much saying, so with one side of them out, the EO is basically like, hey, look at all this cool stuff we've done to to try to safeguard the public with things like uh, authenticity tracing and watermarking. But on the other hand, it's assigned to the tech sector from the U.S. going, hey, we've got you. You can make investments in our market because, and from the US perspective, we have to remember the US isn't competing in a vacuum. It's competing against two very specific players. Totally. So so Um, in the EU, their message to EU firms, both of them, is, (laughs) hey, listen, you don't get, you don't get listened to in Brussels at all, ever. Yeah. And that's not me saying that. Talk to literally any business in the European Union. They are afterthoughts afterthoughts in the European yeah. parliament. And they're like, in China, you can potentially operate in a space that in some ways is very conducive to building AI. The Chinese yes. will hand you totally. massive amount of data with very few guardrails. But... H- lots of political guardrails, but that's about it. Okay.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, no privacy guardrails. Yeah.
2: yeah. So even as they're collaborating at Bletchley, they're also kind of all competing with each other to build whatever open AI becomes, whatever the next open AI is. And I found that really interesting.
0: So here's where I come down on all of this, and I am deeply worried, not about AI, but I am deeply worried about the fact that t- tech companies and governments are so aligned. Now, Helen, you, you mentioned earlier the this, mm. this letter from the leaders of Silicon Valley. So it was like Altman. It, well, it was, it was a ton of people, right? It was Noticably, like 2,000
1: signatories, yeah. No, noticeably
0: yeah. not that many from Meta, which I thought was interesting because I've always thought Meta under Zuckerberg operates a little bit More cleverly on these kinds of things than other tech companies, but that's a that's a conversation for another day. But it was essentially a very fairly strong consensus from tech leaders uh, and the folks who are at the top of the AI race, the ones who are are well ahead. Then I'm talking OpenAI. Sam Altman testified in front of Congress. I think it's to me the. Absolute blue ribbon definition of regulatory capture. I think that these guys are being, you know, hugely funded by VCs, as we know, and, and Microsoft in and OpenAI's case, and, and all this kind of stuff. They are being advised that this is a race. AI is a race to market share. That's the tech, generally, the tech model, the tech business model. This is a race to market share. There's fundamentally very few barriers to entry. Obviously, there's technical barriers to entry. Obviously, there's time as a barrier to entry, mm. but there are very few barriers to entry. And what better barrier to entry can you erect after you have kind of planted your flag in this space than government regulation, which makes it almost impossible for new startups, for new companies to get off the ground because of the burdens on regulatory you know, conditions? That's the best way to entrench a non-market moat around a company when you're already the leader and it is no i think it's no coincidence that the folks who are asking and, and Sam Altman literally asked for regulation what does it take for hey. a person who's grown up in silicon valley to go to congress and beg to be regulated everyone's like, oh what a good guy what a lovely guy he cares about get the hell out of here he wants the government to say oh all that stuff you've already built you're not going to have a, you're not going to have meaningful competitors now i it's i mean the the executive order was designed by, I mean, in deep co- conjunction with these companies. Dimitri, oh, yeah. you, mentioned, you mentioned that yeah. it kind of doesn't kick in for a couple of years because they don't want regulation right now. But when they get to a size where they feel they can cope with it, bring it in because that's when we don't want competitors. And that letter was basically from the folks who, who are who are trying to you know dominate AI, AI. And here's where I'm concerned is, governments and companies should not fundamentally agree on regulating themselves because government doesn't know, no one knows where AI is going. What does good government regulation on AI look other than slow down a bit or, you know, you're talking about algorithmic bias. Well, tell us
1: this. what we're doing, right? Tell us, tell us what you're doing sure. and also look, like, I don't, here I don't, I don't, are the limits to where AI can come in and here's where human, fine, complete have no,
0: human decision has to be man, made. No trust in the EU or the US. To ha- governments to have any idea what's going on in AI because the companies themselves internally don't know. Like, oh, you, you listen to- Yeah, that's Sam true. That's Ull- very true. You listen to interview with yeah. Sam Altman and he's literally like, I have no idea where we're going to be in six months. When Steve Jobs yeah. invented the iPhone, he was like, I-, I had no idea that the iPhone would have- Maps on it in like you know six months. Like the, sure. the stuff is unknowable. So when governments get involved in regulating it, a obviously, and I'm not an anti-government person, but a there's a huge risk of them making catastrophic mistakes. But even beyond that, it's just the slowing down of innovation that is the core to the West. like the West is not growing. We need to improve productivity. AI is the gold standard of how we're going to do that. Yeah, yeah, it, it potentially is the way that we get out of the low growth. Yeah, I
1: had... Okay, John, I have I'm a... Almost
0: done, almost done. Okay, okay, okay Almost okay. off my screen. Dimitri soapbox. and I were hoping the to jump in. But it's, oh, it's the way we're going to get out of this. And government will stifle innovation and it will lock in the problems that we've seen with big tech companies already, which is monopolistic practices, monopolistic behavior. And I truly think that in the nascent parts of these technologies, competition... Is truly the only way to kind of self-regulate it and, and innovate fast enough. And maybe that's a very like libertarian view. And I don't have many libertarian views, but I think I just think it's ridiculous to think you're the government knows how to do me? this better.
1: John, you were you I think you were by the definition of a libertarian, I think, which is not a bad thing. It's not an insult at all. But I will say, okay, on the first point, the the letter and the people who were behind that, I will have to push back and say that they, I actually went to the briefing when they came to pitch to us and tried to get people to sign up. And it was, yes, it was a Sam Altman's and also tech execs, but there were, there were a lot of people from Silicon Valley who are working in the trust and safety space who genuinely wanted to see some kind of guardrails to do with chat GPT or similar kind of it? technologies. That they didn't t- them. There were people who were out of the industry and people who were like no longer invested in that. And they sort of showcased, you know, in that presentation, they showcased the ills or sort of the ex- negative externalities of Web 2.0 and social media. And they said, this is, these are the things that could happen if we went to three um, point 3.0 with AI." Right. That's the first thing. And I think the second thing is there's actually a lot of positives within the tech. I think tech optimist space of people who think AI is really good for lots of industries and we can say going to a diplomacy as well. Like. Right? how it can improve healthcare and education and finance and really just be a step change for a lot of economies who are trying to catch up. So I do think that there's a lot of positives in like the innovation and AI space. The bulk of the media coverage is of course focusing on the doom and gloom, but I think that people who are in the industry working on this don't necessarily really see it that way. And you know, I I, I think that it's whatever is happening right now with uh, the, the kind of momentum and the moments within AI are heading towards the right direction.
2: Can I jump in and beat up on road to surf to reveal two. I mean, (laughs) that's um, a deep deep cut for the economics nerds. Yeah. One thing I'd say first of all, in terms of building AIs, these things cost so much money to build that it is not like when you say, oh, we're going to restrict entry into the market. People are not building new LLMs in their garage. Open AI is burning money on every single like chat GPT use these things are hugely, hugely expensive and they're pumped up with VC capital. So unlike in a lot of other spaces where you could restrict competition, competition is already in that fundamental core of like build a new large language model from scratch and do something really cool with it. That is already restricted to a finer club where kind of probably like regulatory disclosure wouldn't be the barrier. If you've got a billion dollars mm. to buy 50 million CPUs, to sit there and power your AI model, you can afford to then spend the extra 50,000 bucks to have an intern compliance. send a letter to Congress yeah, yeah. to to pay for compliance, which is expensive. I'm not going to pretend it's not, but you can probably cover the cost of compliance. So I'd push back on, on that a bit. I, I would also say, I mean, there are dangers to, the biggest danger I can actually see is downstream. It's not that industry wrote this EO and it's not that there's a huge red flag that industry loves this executive order. What worries mm-hmm. me is that when it comes to implementing this executive order, and as you know, listeners should be aware there is legislation and there is like regulation and executive orders, and that happens at one level, but that effectively yeah. sets, that sets the direction and it sets a goal, but then. Frontline agencies, implementing agencies, have to come in and paint within those lines. And the real challenge is going to be, how do those guys who do not have astronomical budgets and are constrained within government pay scales, hire the kind of specialists who understand AI? When at the moment, if you know what AI even stands for, you can get a job in Silicon Valley for six figures. I know I'm probably Helen's friends are probably going to throw <laughs> things at me, <laughs> but the, the demand for the, the demand for genuine specialists in AI is a red hot. Um, yes, correct. There's fierce competition. So how are these guys going to, as you say, if, if, if Sam doesn't know what's happening six months from now, how are implementing agencies and regulators meant to kind of watch the fences? Who are they going to hire to do that? That's the part of, I don't know if it's regulatory capture, that's the part of like a revolving door thing that makes me worry more than the top level stuff.
0: So I think I think you've hidden exactly my point that, and I, and I would push back on the first bit of what you said, which is like, oh, the cost of, you know, get, compliance, you know, compliance is, that's, that's not what is prohibitive. What's prohibitive is that you are working, you have put got your foot in the door and you are the person or you are the companies that are writing the regulations the rules of the road not now not Two years from now, two years from now, but constantly into the future. Like if you are the ones that have President yep. Biden's ear, the administration's ear, your great point, Demetri. If you're the revolving door between, you know, AI companies and regulators of AI, this is what we see with Wall Street, right? This is the big. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. the big problem with Wall Street is they sit there and they go, "Oh, we've just appointed the CEO of Goldman Sachs as the Treasury Secretary," and then he goes back and forth, and of course totally. he goes in there and writes regulations that, you know, from a from a devil's advocate pos- position of favorable to the banking industry, which then prop like props up America's economy on the other side, are favorable to the banking sector, which then takes the piss and runs away and makes lots of money. So like this revolving door is, it's not,
2: it's not about like being like, oh, it costs a lot of money to
0: file the right stuff. But you just
2: said the banking sector, not, it's not that it's good for Goldman. It's good for the banking sector.
0: But yeah, right. But like we, the, the banking sector is still dominated by some giant players. And it's pretty hard to start a new company to challenge Goldman Sachs because they've been writing the rules for so long. Yeah,
1: But John, this is also just like very characteristic of the US, right? It's a uniquely sort of US sort of symptom where you have industry and the government just having a revolving door and working very ha- close right. hand in hand on like sort of previous things like fossil fuels and that finance sector as well. And then now tech. Um, and tech has been around, you know, last decade as well in terms of them trying to work together with like social media regulation. Um, and it's this a, is just the next can thing. I, can I put a pin in social it's, it's media problematic
0: Because you, you mentioned yeah. it and, and and a lot of people are saying, oh, it's like the internet and it's like social media. And that's why we need to get ahead of this. And, and I understand that. That vibe, because it's like, oh man, maybe we could have stopped all the bad stuff that's gone on since then. But let's go back to 2010 and do a thought experiment. What would you have done? What would you have done as government without knowing, per- without knowing really anything about social media, because you're in government and you, and you know no one knew what would happen. What regulations would you have put in place in 2010 <laughs> that would have that would have helped the current situation?
2: What would I would have forced Elon Musk's dad to hug him. We were one park
0: <laughs> from that. No, no, no,
2: no,
1: probably no. back in the eighties,
0: I think. It, that that boat had probably sailed by then, <laughs> didn't right?
1: Yeah, didn't so we? Yeah, section. I don't know. It, I mean genuinely. Uh, I quickly don't know. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, someone had to go there. I mean, what, like, I think mean, governments are dealing with Saturn low and whatever that system was that we used to use at <laughs> uh but truly, I, I agree, John, I don't think that governments would have known how to calculate 2.0, and I think that's why the, the, the Silicon Valley letters were trying to sound potential alarms of 3.0, right, and, like, part of the presentation was showing, and, like, Te- not what do we say like show not tell right they were trying to show as opposed to tell what was happening but i don't think the social media companies themselves back then in 2010 it took going to go experiment knew what was coming whereas this time it's different and they do know what's see, coming see
0: i don't think they do know i think oh, have a better idea better, I I better idea, idea. Have less of an idea ai is so unknowable it's so much more complex like it's i mean you can't well, at even least argue it's like that
1: knowing you- the unknown right before it was an unknown unknown this time it's like oh yeah we know there's an unknown
0: you is know, that is that
1: just too much? I, well, metal, I think they're both probably too,
0: too much. Donald Rumsfeld. But I think uh, it's I think they're both known <laughs> unknowns. But my point is, you can't regulate this stuff prospectively because no one knows what's going to happen, and what's happened to Twitter now after the Muskinator took over. I mean, it hasn't really worked, but there is some sucker to be had in the fact that Blue Sky exists, Mastodon exists. Like there are alternatives in Facebook's trying to build threads, which, you know, got a hundred million users, users overnight. Like the, the fact that you can compete with this stuff pretty easily because there aren't too many government regulations around it gives me more hope that the possibility that like a company that goes wrong can be kind of competed away. Now, again, I'm, I'm being maybe a little bit apocalyptic, but if we get to a world where you've got three or four dominating AI companies, because they're the only ones that can sustain themselves in, in, in the marketplace after having written the rules and all that kind of stuff, what do you do if OpenAI gets taken over by, you know, King, you know, M- MBS, for example, and we're not comfortable with it? I mean, apart from regulation and government level stuff, you, you can't mm. say, okay, we're not going to use ChatGPT anymore. We're going to it, you know, it's there's, there's, there's you're, you're basically concentrating the risk, in my view. I still believe in the free market as a way to kind of self-regulate these kinds of things, unknowable
2: things. Okay, but I think that, that last point is quite interesting because one of the ways that the EO leans in is through the national security lens. So, for example, there's a requirement that if yeah. anything you're building has national security implications, could be used through a security framework. Then, just like if Which you're is building machine. Mich- yeah, well, that's part of the problem. Well, like, if you build a sufficiently complex. Not, I'm,
0: sh- I'm sh- it has written an EO that gives them jurisdiction over everything as they see fit.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, but like this part of the challenge with AI is that it's not the. And this is what a lot of the debate is about. Helen, you will correct me because I don't understand this stuff nearly as well as you. But my understanding mm. is a lot of the debate is a lot of people say we should regulate, but do we regulate the individual use case? So, like the app you have built, or do we regulate at the level of the model that feeds the app, or the kind of algorithm that, exactly. that that you build the app atop? And I think a lot of the the arguments for doing it at the model level rather than the app level is that <laughs> with a sufficiently powerful model, you can do just about anything, including horrifying stuff no one's even thought of. So doing so regulation at the app stage is like too late. We will exactly. have already exactly. unleashed horrific things. Um, exactly. No, so my one point was like, one of the things that EO says is, okay, if you're building stuff that has a, a national security implication, you have to let us know what it does. You have to be transparent about how it works and what it does. And that makes me think of how, you know, you know in Australia, we are hugely protective of our, who owns our power grid or who owns our 5G. Farmland. Yeah, Farmla- Farmland, of 5G. <laughs> I've never been a thousand percent sure, like what's supposed to go wrong in a farmland scenario, but um, that, that's something to exactly, just very. well, they could just do smuggle it. Like there is a, it's anyway, I, it's a separate rant. I have a lot of, I have a lot of feelings about giant tunnels to, to Beijing from up of the Marlborough, but, um, but specifically on this, like the government basically says, okay, things that are critical to the backbone of how our society functions have yeah. to be regulated, and I think I understand your systems, reticence, exactly. John, yeah. about government involvement. But I'm like, well, that kind of involvement was inevitable. There was no, there was no way. Nobody is so libertarian that they are comfortable with a scenario where the AI that is powering the Pentagon's computers is owned by a company out of Shenzhen. To, to Sorry, be clear, I'm
0: not. I'm not anti government regulation of AI. I'm I'm or government kind of putting guardrails on. I am fairly anti government listening to tech leaders writing regulation, prospective regulation at this nascent stage when no one knows where it's going, uh, because I think it can do more I think it will stifle innovation far more than it will protect harm, because we don't know what the harm will be and we don't and but we don't know what's happening. Um and I think in time, of course, exactly for all the reasons you pointed out. Dimitri, the government has a right and proper role to kind of regulate things that are fundamental to the way society operates. But we are not there yet. Like, AI is not a thing that is fundamental to how society operates yet. Yeah. It'll happen quick, but we're not there yet. But anyway... Why don't we spend the last bit of this conversation just kind of bringing it back to foreign policy, which is far more in our wheelhouse because, you know, yes, I'm, yes, I'm, yes, reaching, yes, I'm reaching yes. the depths of oh, the edges yeah. of my knowledge. Yeah. Probably, <laughs> I, probably, I probably blew past that edge yeah. quite some time ago, if I'm honest. But, but When Helen, you love
1: one. not exactly. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Helen has rolled her eyes <laughs> 392 times He's, so far. That is
1: yeah. not true. Well, a, Every time John and I are like, so me. I
2: think the way computer work
0: but, but Helen, why don't you tell us why this stuff matters from a foreign policy context? Why can three of us, who that's where our expertise lies, why should we be talking about it? Or should we not be talking about it and people should just ignore us?
1: No, I mean, we should absolutely be talking about it, right? I think that it is really going to transform the way that diplomacy is conducted. And this is not me saying, you know, Robert, coming for your jobs, diplomats. It's saying that we can be, we can, well, our colleagues at the department can still be, will be better diplomats because of AI, right? And I think that's it would happen in three ways, depending on uptake. But you know, in, in the efficiency, in policy making, in service delivery, I really think that if you really embrace AI within diplomacy, a lot of the really mundane, like repetitive work, like media summaries, like tracking trade negotiation positions, like checking trends within you know certain countries, like supply chains or links, right. That sort of stuff could be, if adequately harnessed using AI tools, can really help make you a better diplomat. Imagine never having to write media summaries or talking point. Um, I would people have that, that. You know, to, well,
2: to, well, then
1: you were there to say, the hey, this is actually fault. <laughs> well, carrying sure, suitcases
2: yeah. for ministers.
1: Yeah, Correct, yeah. yes. Airport, airport, uh, airport lacking. But I, re- I really do think that it is a really interesting tool that is used well by diplomacy can transform how we do things. Like uh, and, and make service sort of delivery more predictable um, for clients who are using consular services abroad and also enhance like the sort of content that we're able to put out as sure. Jim, um
0: What what about things like you know, let's take the fact that we do need to regulate it at some point and this stuff is a global technology beyond borders, right? I mean it's still yeah, yeah, like yeah. ones and yeah. zeros. What role do kind of the Bletchley Park or even a more formal UN one, as we chatted about at the start. Do you think they have a role in it? Is that is that something that diplomats are going to have to get around?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, it's a sort of the substance in the form of AI and diplomacy, something that all foreign ministries need to get the shit around. I think they need to have tick specialists who understand what they're talking about Mm. in order to kind of like prosecute those tech interests at the whatever, plurilateral, multilateral convenings. In the same way that we had climate scientists or people who at least were a little bit steeped and understand the science of like climate, right? Talking about the COP negotiation. Uh But I really do think that we're trending towards that way. Um, But I also think that, you know, AI can be used as a tool of diplomacy. So what I mean by that is like potentially thinking about how you can use AI technologies to help countries that you were trying to, you know, support through your development budgets to sort of leapfrog that technological jump. I don't think it's been enough thinking about that particular area, but I do think that we are potentially trending towards that once we get the other infrastructure, physical infrastructure stuff set up. Uh, but it's exciting. I really, I really do think that technology or AI in this case is going to, to make people better diplomats.
2: Could I make two, two points on that, very much to support Helen's point, point. one thing that AI definitely does is it makes a uh, lower to mid-tier technical tasks accessible to people without technical skills. Like yes. it can fix the backend code of your website if your website isn't that complicated and most websites aren't that complicated. So in a really practical example, I did a lot of trade negotiations, 80% mm. of the time what we're doing in that room is basically playing with the English language, trying to find a formulation of the words that works for all sides and has the right implications. Mm-hmm. I was reasonably good at that because unlike a lot of the other people in the room, I grew up speaking English. And so I have an innate feel for the nuances of what the word infer versus suggests will sound Correct. like. If you have everybody in that room with access to a gigantic model that can help them sort of play with language going like, give me 20 variations of this sentence. And what I want it to do is make sure that regulators still have the space to control for pesticides, but yada, yada, yada. And Mm -hmm. it spits out 24. Suddenly developing countries who previously would have really struggled to engage at that level on an even footing are Mm -hmm. able to plug their exact ideas into a machine and have it, Give it like That's that is point. empowering Hardly, right. it would have been transformational when i was in the room yeah and and i i for one can't wait to see it on a kind of bigger point and i think helen brought up climate change and this is where i think it's really interesting from policy perspective because in terms of u.s china europe but especially u.s china climate change and- is weird right in in almost every other concept, context the U.S. and China barely talk to each other, in fact, are in loggerheads and in open competition. But even kind of politicians on both sides and even hawks on both sides will sometimes go, okay, yes, we're in a, you know, say the U.S. will say China are bad actors and we're, uh, we're fighting them and they're so dangerous, but we have to talk to them about climate change. There is no getting around yeah. the fact that we have to talk to them. like there's, there's no solving yeah. Yeah. it without them, blah, blah. And then there's a climate change summit, and now, like, the the Chinese and the Americans are talking. Now, does that solve U.S.-China tensions? No. Does that mean we will have a peaceful 21st century? No, obviously not. But is it better than the alternative? Yes. Every point of contact where we can have the superpowers go, yeah, okay, we hate one another, but this is a shared global concern that we need to find a common language about, is Mm. a net positive for our chances of living through this century, very frankly, not to be apocalyptic, but from a foreign policy perspective, the more practice these guys get of getting around a table and working towards some sort of common understanding, the better I sleep at night. And I think AI being one of these global things that no country can regulate on its own, where there are incentives for being a free rider, which means that there are incentives. For global rules, I think AI could be another one of those fertile grounds for a good discussion. Maybe that is yeah, wildly I mean, practice, optimistic.
1: No, it's not. I mean, it's already happening, right? Data scientists and COP teams are using AI to sort of measure the impact of like certain positional changes or like certain point percentage points in the next like decade. In terms of countries pledges right and that is a very real good outcome for using that technology in this context um and if you think about you know for example another example like rebuilding ukraine right using satellite imagery to be able to track how it's actually looking and where, you know, potential sort of conflicts could impact in terms of downstream agricultural outputs and demining and the quality of the soil, et cetera. So I think, you know, I, I am now speaking beyond my brief and I'm probably not uh, able to speak to that convincingly, but I do think that more broadly, again, I think that it's a really good thing for diplomacy. And I think the three of us should potentially, as another side hustle, uh, start up a, a tech tool to help people track, like to to help people in these climate negotiations or something.
0: Helen, it's one thing for us to talk about (laughs) tech uh, and get beyond our brief. It's a whole other thing to suggest that we should build the tech. So that might be where we leave the conversation. (laughs) John 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 says it's too heavily regulated. Uh, Uh, Yeah, it's not fair. That's correct. He actually
1: signed my letter in Silicon Valley. I saw John Valor on the list. Yeah,
0: exactly. I I wish I was important enough to be be asked. So what we're going to do here is we're going to finish up our conversation with Let's call it house party chat. What kind of things this weekend when you're at a house party of, you know, someone you don't know that well, how are you going to break the ice? What are you talking about? It can be interesting, can be, you know, tedious if if that's your personality, which it probably is mine to be honest. Dimitri, what 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 are you, what are you what are you going to be uh, talking about?
2: Oh god. See, I was I'm going to lay into them about this Grok AI thing um, because I find it to be <laughs> the 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 funniest kind Uh, Listen, I, as everyone, as everyone who knows me knows, I am very invested in Twitter and having Elon Musk taken over was a like a a personal, personal decrease in my quality of life. But now Elon Musk has released an AI called Grok AI, which provides sassy answers to questions. It provides answers. This will sound like I'm making this up, but he has literally built this thing to answer questions the way that you imagine a Redditor circa like 2014 would answer. And I know I'll that's not love that. Re- so like you. Yeah, th- thanks. <laughs> exactly. And nobody <laughs> wants shanfuls? their questions answered by me. You, you guys have to look this up. He's asked a bunch of questions. They're all yeah. online. I really encourage people to check this Put out. The show notes. Yeah, we absolutely will because I think you guys should see this. And appreciate why I drink. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Helen, what are you going to be chatting well, about?
1: Well, I think the polar opposite of that. I'm talking, I'm thinking about animal diplomacy, right? So this week, the last two pandas. Don't you steal no, mine. Come on. Don't come on.
0: You, how dare you? That's what I was going t- to
1: tell. But you can talk no, about no, the pandas. Let me have something else. I will talk about. I'll quickly
0: Google. You talk about the pandas.
2: Did, did you, are you spilling okay. pandas from a Chinese woman no, live no, no. on air? <laughs> put it in the british museum
1: john john capital c cancelled well look i will give him the pandas because i am very magnanimous like that but john you could speak to him but i will talk about the other the second part of my animal diplomacy which is a donkey farm uh, out in virginia that i have recently been told about so i asked a friend what should i do for a hot date right like where should i take uh my partner on a date he was like you should go to this fantastic donkey farm that contains a very particular breed of donkey that George Washington had initially envisaged to build the United States. Uh, now this particular breed of donkey apparently turned out to be not really effective and not very good at pulling carts, if that's cetera. So we became like a sort of defiled species. But then a woman who was like out in Virginia was like, they're really cute. So I'm going to breed them and create a donkey sanctuary. So there's this donkey sanctuary where you can go and like pat these donkeys and think about what America could have been if it was built on the back of donkeys. So then that's my that's my weekend chat. John, you can have the pandas back. No, on, I, over I, to you.
0: I, like, like, like the professional I am, I brought two different <laughs> options in case it was stolen. I just can't believe on our first... Never won. We chose chose the same one. No, we
1: have to talk about the donkeys because I mean they're not the donkeys; they're all the pandas. (laughs) Because
0: I, the pandas. Well, okay. So then I'll very quickly talk about that. That I was just going to talk about how the the end of Chinese diplomacy, panda diplomacy, is upon us. That the the last two pandas have been taken back from. The Washington Zoo. Is it called the National Zoo, I think? Is
1: the National it? Zoo. There's one left in the country, apparently, but that's also on it's but, way back. Is it yeah, on the, the run?
0: Well, Don't well. send me back there. Don't send me back there. <laughs> but this idea that China has for, you know, I think since the 80s, kind of used panda diplomacy to, you know, engender goodwill. Soft diplomacy. It's a, you know, we all do it. Australia certainly does it with... with koalas. Owls. Yeah, koalas and owls, our sort of soft power. Kylie Minogue. Just yeah, quite Kylie. All, well Kylie. Well, quite. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Jackman. But, but yeah.
0: interestingly, those pandas were never owned they never transferred ownership. China owns all the babies. They just leased it to these countries all around the world. So I found that was interesting. But my one second, belt, one road, one panda? Correct.
1: Was, yeah, yeah. Two
0: two pandas, but every panda that comes every one panda that comes out of it is ours as well.
1: But yeah, uh, I the saw whole, the motorcade go past in case yeah. you're wondering. It was it was like incredible motor this crank. motorcade. An actual motorcade to take it to the airport to be Phoenixed back to China. These and poor hand They're American at heart, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're
0: going to have reverse culture shock, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, the second thing I was going to talk about is the King's speech, which I found kind of interesting. The movie? Yeah. Well, no, not the movie, but King Charles opening parliament in the UK. recently. Uh, oh,
1: week. right. The um, actual King. And, yes. and, and
0: the actual King and his speech, literally. Two things struck me. One, obviously, I think this has been picked up in the media where it was the king is a very staunch and fairly you know legitimate environmental campaigner and has been I think for many years right Dimitri? like 30 40 years
1: yeah um, yeah yeah yeah. a conservationist
0: exactly I think I was scrutinizing his face when he announced that you know we're gonna approve more oil and gas fields and you know the new the Rishi policies but he He's a pro. Yeah. He learned from his mum. There was there wasn't even a there wasn't even a slight snarl. Um, there was a great tweet about that too, where he you know he's dressed up in the furs and the crown, sitting on a gold throne at the start of parliament. And, and I'll read it out to you. It says, you know, um, his speech said, "My government will continue to take action," and not his his government. Like you know, this is Rishi Sunak writing the speech for the king. He says, "My government yeah. will continue to take action to ease the cost of living for families," and I just couldn't help but wonder. Talking about easing the cost of living for families when you are dressed in <laughs> truly <laughs> dripping in gold. You how expensive that me. stuff
2: is to maintain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. His cost of living <laughs> is very high. <laughs> and the
0: dry cleaning bills not through the room. Please. Exactly. <laughs> Specifically about his family. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yes. but yeah, Those two oh, things stuck
0: out at me. Anyway, great chatting, Dimitri, Helen. I think I really enjoyed that. Yeah. It's, this was really fun. Thanks, Dimitri. Thanks, Helen. See you soon.
2: Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to receive the rest of the episodes in Season 2 the second they're released. You can also subscribe to the International Intrigue newsletter for free to receive punchy, informed, and readable summaries of all the big international news stories right in your inbox every weekday morning.